Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I am Chris Dyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. It's a fact. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. And Eliana, other than making us record a day late and other than being late to the day late recording, I caused you to burn your hand. You are you are a true team player because you're playing injured today. You should be on the injured reserve list for a T-related accident. And yet you are soldiering on, and I'm grateful to you. I am soldiering on. It's this. Is I what, burned my hand on a coffee mug. Coffee? It was, it was coffee? Yes. Reheat. I don't drink tea. Do I seem like a tea drinker? Some people drink tea. I'm not, I know some people do. I, I didn't say s- some people don't drink tea. I'm not, I'm not, I don't judge, I don't judge a tea drinker, especially a lady would be very, would be very fine for a lady to have a a mug of tea of an afternoon. And I just find microwave coffee to be the worst. Oh, I don't mind it at all. That's why you always want to throw out my coffee. Yeah. Microwave coffee. make a new one. No. Oh, I don't mind it at all. Microwave coffee is the pits. Also difficult today for me was getting a cup of black coffee. On three separate occasions, I attempted to obtain a cup of black coffee and was initially thwarted. And I don't know what's going on out there, but people need to calm down with the coffee additives. Okay. What's on our front page, Chris? It's a great question, Eliana. We normally start with something uh, political coverage, but this was a big week in journalism, big week of massacres in journalism. So we're starting with, we're starting with journalism. Yeah. And the uh, various crises in the news business, we lost one publication this week, mass dismissals at another. And there were some good pieces that captured the underlying dynamics of this. The first was in the Columbia Journalism Review, I had a big piece about the death of the Washington Bureau. And, and, they, and about- they were they were so good. They wrote it before the Wall Street Journal slash. Both of these pieces came out before. Yeah, the, and the and the Wall Street Journal's Washington Bureau, I would say, would is fair to describe as a jewel in the crown of big time American journalism. One of the top jobs, one of the top spots in all of American journalism, would be the the Washington Bureau for the Wall Street Journal. And that was a that I sat up and took notice of that. So the. This piece actually is about something a little bit different, but about the death of the Washington Bureau um, of local newspapers and uses the example of the Baltimore Sun had a Washington Bureau and all these various local newspapers had Washington bureaus. And what was it talks about what what purpose they serve now that there are big national news outlets that cover national politics and And it says, without local coverage, the only times most Americans hear about their representatives is from campaign ads or when they're on national news talking about partisan issues. That makes it harder for politicians who break with their party to get some to get something done to survive politically. And it makes it harder for issues of local importance that might have crossover appeal to gain any traction. If the only way to gain attention and raise money is to talk about national issues on Fox News or MSNBC 
why bother taking a political risk to cross the aisle and try to solve problems that actually matter to your district? And there, there is much to, be, much to be said of that, but the smart Matt Iglesias takes the counter point of view in a very smart piece at his site, Slow Boring, two crises in the news business. One is bad for journalists and the other bad for democracy. He makes, you. no one who follows Iglesias' work will be surprised to hear that he takes a somewhat contrarian point of view on the, the consequences for local politics of the death of bureaus, basically saying, well, he, he uses this example. It was very frustrating to see an overwhelmingly Democratic House district send a guy like Chris Shays to D.C., where, yes, he was a moderate Republican, but in practice, he was keeping Tom DeLay in power and advancing conservative causes. The shift to seeing this kind of thing through more of a national lens has created problems, but those problems are fundamentally downstream of voters' understanding of the system, of voters' understanding of the system getting better, not worse. So he takes a little contrarian view on that. But the part of this that I think is, and I, I think both the Columbia Journalism Review and Iglesias have reasonable points to make. On the one hand, local is better. On the other hand, yeah, if all politics really are national, we might as well understand them in national terms. But the part that I really found most compelling in what uh, Iglesias said in this piece was he pivoted from that to something we've talked about before, which is these, we talked last week about the billionaires buying publications and losing all this money on them and all of those, and all of those things. And he talks about the need of understanding the business model of patronage journalism. And he says this, if you want to talk people into supporting media as a philanthropic venture, which seems like a good idea to me, then you're going to need to think hard about how to make the case. That means focusing on strategy, fulfilling genuine public service need in the most cost-effective way possible rather than romanticizing the good old days in a way that's appealing to journalists. It means it probably means returning to an old-fashioned, studiously neutral tone or else very conscious, consciously serving as a kind of propaganda organ. Most journalists, in my experience, are by their nature independent-minded people who thrill at nothing more than demonstrating their editorial independence. But independence, it seems to me, was a privilege held by people who had lucrative local monopolies. If you're asking people to give you money, you need to find a way to align your work with their goals. And that conclusion is in light of another worthwhile, important discussion of how the Washington Post doesn't, yes. doesn't yep, want to do another... its job. He makes another really good point, which is I do think there's an attitude among journalists that these wealthy guys buying newspapers, whether it's Jeff Bezos or Mark Benioff or whoever it el else it is, there is a lot of resentment that they, that they're so wealthy and yet they're cutting jobs. Jeff Bezos lost $100 million on The Washington Post. They're, they're pushing people to take buyoffs and so on. There's a lot of resentment with people saying, they're so rich. What, what does it matter that they're losing $100 million? And he makes the point that like the um, the Jeff Bezoses of the world have a lot of choices when it comes to what they lose money on. And surely he could lose money on something more worthwhile than the Washington Post in its current state. And he talks about 
distribution of drugs in Africa or, you know, it doesn't have to be journalism. And so if he's going to lose $100 million in journalism or $50 million annually in journalism, it should be a valuable journalistic product. And the way the Post is currently functioning simply isn't adding value to the journalistic universe in that it's not covering Washington. Here's what he writes. The Bezos-era Washington Post, despite some recent layoffs, is better staffed than it was before he purchased it and employs a lot of great journalists who write great stories. But it's also the primary news organization in a major American metro area. And the Post simply hasn't deployed those great journalists to tackle what's easily the biggest story in the region. Why did D.C.'s murder rate soar in 2023 while falling nationally? I feel like I've been watching firsthand the devastating consequences for democracy when local media withers. So basically, uh, the Iglesias counter to the, oh, we what about the Washington bureaus is let local be local and let national be national. And wasting, I shouldn't say wasting, expending resources on covering national stories for local papers is of dubious value if it comes at the cost of covering what's local, because there are people that will cover the national, but not nearly enough who are covering the local. And I think the Washington Post is a very, and very compelling case. Uh, local media didn't wither in Washington because there wasn't a paper to cover it. Uh, right. That That's also quite interesting. I also think that the the dichotomy is sort of a false one in, in certain senses in that so many of these local stories actually are national. Um, Washington, D.C. is a big and important enough city that much of what happens here is of national importance, including the way this city is governed. And there's an argument to be made that the local happenings here do have national importance, however navel-gazing that may sound. Anyhow, they were great pieces, and I think we can we can now talk about the specifics, which is the Messenger, RIP, which a year ago, its founder, Jimmy Finkelstein, was saying that it was going to rake in $100 million a year. A lot it was of founded money. founded in 2023. Finkelstein stole the, sold The Hill to Nexstar for $130 million. And the fundamental problem of... The Messenger, which I think people pointed out before the thing even launched, was that it was based on clickbait stories that would attract huge traffic from social media, which is already a fading business model. It's played. It's played. Yeah. Uh, it is a fading business model. And with that, I actually don't quite understand the Wall Street Journal's Washington Bureau layoffs. Well, um, before, some before you do that, I just want to point out that I was stunned by the salary that The Messenger oh. was paying to its editor. A man named Dan Wakeford was getting paid, according to the New York Post, 900000 American dollars a year to sit atop a giant- Only for one year. Yeah, only for one year. A giant swirling pile of clickbait. The, uh, you know, I, I, I want to be careful how I say this. Oh, no need. No need, Chris. I want to be careful how I say this because I work Speak for- Speak your truth, Starwalt. I, I, I work for Nexstar as well, the new owner of The Hill or the owner of The Hill for the past two years. The old model 
that Jimmy Finkelstein used at the Hill and that other publications use of cranking out URLs to get a little taste. And we'll get to talk more about click chasing in for a deep tease when we talk about the Super Bowl. But there's no there there. It doesn't take you anywhere. And there's no super genius editor that can come up with enough ways to repackage other people's work into clickbait clicks to generate that kind of revenue. It didn't work when the when Finkelstein's version of The Hill did it. It, did, it didn't work for The Daily Call. It doesn't work. It's not, it, we're, we're, if we were ever there, we are past it now. Well, we're past it. We were there when, the, the source of this problem is that at one point, Facebook yes. prioritized news in its algorithm and it no longer does. It used to have a lot of people on a news team there that built relationships with news sites. And it, so these news sites that were built this way were totally reliant on an industry that is fundamentally their competitor, social media. Yep. And Facebook woke up one morning and decided it wanted to change. And that business model went bye-bye. And because it was bad, you know, it's, uh, Facebook made a very rational choice, which is they kept getting in trouble for being a news-based thing. They got in trouble with news organizations who complained about the, the rates that they were getting paid. They got in trouble with Congress for the kind of content that was up there. They got in trouble, trouble, trouble. And it's like, okay. Yeah, Democrats blame them for Russiagate. Republicans blame them for suppressing, you know, for yep. suppressing conservatives. It's a totally thankless role to play. So they said, how about cat videos, right? The internet always, you go around and around, you're like, maybe just cat videos. Maybe we'll just do cat videos. And it's a, it's a much more prudent course of action. And, but as you say, that doesn't explain the Wall Street Journal. Right, Chris, that doesn't explain the layoffs at the Wall Street Journal, which I have to admit, I was sort of, sort of puzzled by them in that the messenger, I totally understand. A lot of these layoffs, I understand in that I've never heard of these reporters. A lot of them, I'm not seeing the value they add to the world. The journal, like these were some big name reporters. They included a reporter by the name of Brody Mullins, who's, I think, one of the most talented reporters Truly. on lobbying in Washington. Yeah. So it's a real loss. It's a real loss. And I mean, we'll have to see how they're going to redistribute. There was some talk that some of the jobs were going back to New York or going to New York because they covered more financial things and they were going to do them out of New York than instead of out of Washington. But I mean, the, the, from, you know, I, we, we could, we could build a pantheon to really, really good journalists there over the years. And what an important source of good journalism it has been over time. And, you know, the pressure is really on now, whatever comes next to try to live up to that very high standard. Chris, that brings us to our 2024 coverage. And I was struck by struck. struck by an excellent article in the Associated Press on one of the Trump cases. The AP ran the following dissolving Trump's business empire would stand apart in the history of New York fraud law. 
Lawyers for the state in Trump's months-long civil trial have argued that the principles of fair play in business alone are enough to justify a harsh penalty, but even they aren't calling for the prospect of liquidation of his businesses and properties raised by a judge. And some legal experts worry that if the judge goes out of his way to punish the former president with that worst-case scenario, it could make it easier for courts to wipe out companies in the future. What the judge left unclear is what he meant by dissolution, whether that referred to the liquidation or entities that control properties or the properties themselves. This piece is about the fact that no company has been dissolved in the history of New York fraud law without the prosecution showing that there was a victim. And the prosecution in this case has not demonstrated that anybody suffered from Trump's business practices. And I just thought this was worthy of calling out because it's so rare that you see anywhere in the mainstream media any coverage of the fact that Trump, while he's a jerk, a lout, crude, whatever he may be, is actually being held to some kind of a different standard. Yes, here, here. And it, it was I, when you sent that, I thought, holy smokes, it definitely, you know, we, we need a profile and courage award for news organizations that are willing to publish things that go against the narrative that many in their audience would like to hear. But I don't know if that applies to the Associated Press, which is supposed to be, <laughs> this, is, this is what they're supposed to be doing, which is- Most of these places aren't doing their jobs, so low bar. So an, another one that surprised me in the same vein was how aggressive the Washington Post was with the district attorney in Georgia who had to admit some O.J. Simpson trial style improper relationship with one of the other prosecutors on the on the case involving Donald Trump and his effort to swipe Georgia's electoral votes. And I'm sorry, how do we pronounce her first name? Fanny. No, it's not Fanny. Fanny I've been, or Fanny. Fanny. Yes, it's Fanny. Fanny. It's Fanny Willis. And I noticed early on the Washington Post hit this story hard, and I thought. That's kind of surprising. I mean, it's not in Washington, first of all, but also it doesn't go with the post overall democracy dies in darkness narrative. And they were pretty aggressive in the story. And today we're recording this on Friday. The, the, the press got their scalp. Willis had to admit that she had a, a personal <laughs> relationship with an outside prosecutor she appointed to manage the election interference case against Trump and his allies. And the 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 non-media part of the story, of course, is prosecutors, federal prosecutors were concerned about what would happen with a local prosecution and how it might interfere with Jack Smith's efforts. Well, here you go. Here's a here here here's a real good example that if you don't know better than to not commingle your your personal matters with the prosecutorial matters that you you might have a problem there's that part but then there's also this which is the reality we we spent a long time talking about the Trump prosecutions in the abstract i don't know how many charges total including the goofia man alvin bragg charges but it's you know 90 charges or whatever and it was repeated over and over and over again and it was like, well, so many charges, but we didn't spend maybe understandably very much time talking about specific things. How will this case hold up? How will that case hold up? As of this recording, 
the the effort to fast track the January 6th charges against Trump here in Washington seems to be off track as the Supreme Court isn't ready to come to a ruling on Trump's claims of total immunity. And what emerges out of all of this is that case in Florida, the documents case, looks like the most consequential one. Do you agree with that? I I thought it was the most the the best case against him from the outset, although it will be the hardest case jury-wise, I think, for them to get a conviction on in that the Washington, D.C. case, Trump will have clearly a hostile jury. D.C. was about 99 to 1. You know, there are no Trump voters in Washington, D.C. And while I think the Florida case is the strongest, the jury pool there will be harder to win over. Maybe the jury pool will, maybe the jury will be harder to win over, but it's a very strong case. And it's prosecutable before the election, right? The, there was, it was always an open question whether or not you could move that big January 6th case with all of those defendants and all of that stuff. Whereas the, you know, as it was Bill Barr, Trump's former attorney general, who said early on, this is the one. And un, uncomfortably for Republicans, it's on the one hand, the exact same thing that they wanted Hillary Clinton locked up for, but it's also not, you know, it's do, it's a documents case. And you can see how easily they can rash, if, if he was convicted, rationalize their way into like, well, you know, it's paperwork. It's paperwork. We can deal with that. Chris, I wanted to contrast the Washington Post coverage of the Fannie Willis case today with CNN's piece about it. Oh, no. Um, The the Free Beacon had a story earlier this week about it. It's a different Fannie Willis scandal, Fannie Willis scandal, in which a whistleblower in her um, district attorney's office approached her and said, I'm concerned about the misuse of federal funds by a member of the team. And she said, she acknowledged the concern and said that very well may be happening. And this was recorded on an audio tape. And then the whistleblower was axed a month later with no explanation. And so the beacon has the audio tape of the conversation between Willis and the whistleblower where she acknowledges the complaints may very well be valid. Anyhow, that led the House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan to subpoena documents in this other case. So CNN uh, folds the two together and writes about it. And this is as of two hours ago this way. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has been subpoenaed by House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan to produce documents related to the use and spending of federal funds, according to a copy of the subpoena obtained by CNN. The subpoena is part of a broader investigation by Jordan that is focused on Willis's use of federal funds. No explanation at all of the details that happen. And then this amazing line. House Republicans are also investigating unsubstantiated allegations that Willis engaged in an improper romantic relationship with her lead prosecutor on the Georgia election subversion case, Nathan Wade, according to a previous letter from Jordan. Unsubstantiated. Um, It's so amazing because, number one, no mention of the audio tape existing in one of these cases or, or explanation of any of those details. Number two, Sure, it was unsubstantiated, but Willis had also never denied the fact, the allegations in what's now about three weeks of their public airing in by one of the defendants in the case. And I think most people knew it was true by her reaction. 
she was subpoenaed in the divorce case. And it was pretty clear it was true. But reading the CNN story, you would really think these Republicans are crazy. Well, it just another just another example of how Donald Trump is like O.J. Simpson. In the O.J. trial, it was Marsha Clark. And let's see if let's see how my 90s, mid 90s recollection goes. I believe it was Marsha Clark. And his name was Christopher Darden. Darden. Thank you. And it was later revealed that the in the intense quest for justice against O.J. had 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 forged desire between them. And here we are. Here we are again. Donald Trump is the orange O.J. Chris, do you want to hit Elise Stefanik's Trump audition? Well, I thought this, this big Atlantic piece. I thought it was actually a really smart and interesting piece. Russell Berman writing at the Atlantic takes you inside he so here's the lead Elise Stefanik and I had been speaking for only about a minute when she offered this stark self-assessment I have been an exceptional member of Congress <laughs> her confidence reminded me of the many immodest pronouncements of Donald Trump and that's probably not an accident Stefanik has been everywhere lately amassing fans among Trump's base at crucial moments both for the GOP and for her future Stefanik spent October goes on talks about that but um, the 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 key part to interview Stefanik is to strike a sort of a deal access in exchange for browbeating. She answered my questions, even as she rebuked me for asking about such trifling matters as election denialism in January 6th. Everyday Americans are sick and tired of the biased media, including you, Russell, and the types of questions you're asking, Stefanik told me. I started to ask her about her recent appearance on Meet the Press where she had casually referred to the January 6th defendants as hostages, an unsubtle echo of Trump's language. The comment prompted a predictable round of shock, but not surprised reactions from Democrats and anti-Trump Republicans. A New York Demo Democrat representative, Dan Goldman, introduced a resolution to censure Stefanik over her remarks. And the I thought about this in, con in contrast with another sycophantic Trump booster of your which was Ron DeSantis and Ron DeSantis couldn't do what Elise Stefanik does because he wouldn't do the first part of the interview, right? He wouldn't go talk to the Atlantic. He wouldn't go do these other things. Stefanik is willing to go do it. And she understands. And, and what Berman is laying out here is this is the transaction. Yep. I want the attention and I want the attention for bashing you. And therefore, I will submit myself to your questions, which I won't answer, but I will submit myself to this because this is the transaction that I want. And I thought this was a very useful insight into how anti-media media works. That is a very interesting observation. She's she's hungry. She wants it. Let's get to. We've 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 like restrained ourselves. Favorite, yes. Least favorite to topic of the week, which is. The New York Times story, Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey, and a MAGA meltdown. And this is, if you don't know what we're talking about, you must live under a rock. The, I'll read from the Times. Other detractors of Ms. Swift among Mr. Trump's biggest fans include one of his lawyers, Alina Haba, one of his biggest conspiracy theorists, Jack Posobiec, and other MAGA luminaries like Laura Loomer and Char Charlie Kirk. The right has been fuming about Ms. Swift since September when she urged her fans on Instagram to register to vote 
and the online outfit vote.org reported a surge of 35,000 registrations in response. Ms. Swift had embarked on a world tour that helped make her a billionaire. Gavin Newsom, the California governor, praised her as profoundly powerful, and then Time magazine made her person of the year, kicking off another round of MAGA infuriation. And leave it to her to couple up with the NFL's, he's a running back, right? No, he's a he's a tight end. He's a receiver. He's a tight end. Yes. I, I don't even know the difference. Travis he catches Kelsey. the ball. Yes, he catches so the ball. The conspiracy theory is that they're together so they can endorse Trump or endorse Biden and help him the win co- the election. The conspiracy, it goes much, much deeper, Eliana. Okay. Much, much deeper. The NFL is in the thrall. So so it goes back to the Colin Kaepernick and the kneeling during the national anthem and the belief among the MAGA faithful that the NFL is anti-American and woke and DEI. And the fact that, and, and when you add in Taylor Swift, who there's a really bizarre fear that they have of Taylor Swift. They're really, it's an, it's an odd fear that they have. And I, I wrote a long, long time ago in 2016, that Donald Trump was Katy Perry and Hillary Clinton was Taylor Swift. One was achingly, sincerely feeling forward, and the other was doing it for the lols. And little did I know how how true that would be. So the, the belief is that the NFL is rigged so that the Chiefs win when they don't deserve to win. And that the NFL, through through its corruption, has fixed the outcome so that Taylor Swift will have the largest possible platform in which to deliver the election to Joe Biden. It's all it's all rigged. And we know that that it's it, we know how it, we know how they're feeling because Boomer Esiason, who's part of the NFL on CBS crew, was accosted by conspiracy-minded fans on the train after the Ravens game. According to Esiason, a Ravens fan was cordial with the crew when they first met, but began espousing conspiracy theories about how the NFL was rigged. Esiason said he wanted to ensure he wasn't being too brash toward the belligerent fan, so he checked in with the person sitting next to him. The impartial observer confirmed that the fan was out of line. The person sitting next to Esiason, as it turns out, worked in analytics for the New York Giants. I said, listen, if he gets any closer, I may have to get up and blanking smash this guy right in the face. And Boomer Esiason probably could do some face smashing. And I'm bleeped off now. I'm trying to watch the NFC championship. And this idiot is screaming about how the NFL is rigged. According to Esiason, Burleson, oh, Nate Burleson, was ready to fight the guy on the train. Nate's ready to come out of his suit and ready to rip the guy's face off his eyes and added, it was nuts. So that so you want to know how it's going out there in America? That's that's how it's going. And Vivek Ramaswamy chimed in on who was he talking to? Something goofy, I assume. Following the Chiefs win over the Baltimore Ravens in the AFC championship game, Ramaswamy essentially called the Kelsey Swift relationship a sham while predicting Swift's endorsement of Biden is right around the corner. Ramaswamy is the only person in America who's had this thought about how, quote, perfect it would be to see Swift and Kelsey celebrating a Super Bowl victory together for the pop star to endorse Biden alongside the NFL, her NFL boyfriend, in the lead up to the November election. So, if I may, we've, may. T- we've talked before about the rotting whale carcass theory of news. 
which is there are many, many scuttling crabs at the floor of the ocean looking for a little way to get a little content, right? And we've talked about the messenger. There's, there are many like that out there looking for anything in this atomized world of ours that carries a little weight and that you can get something out of. So the NFL, luckily, if you're being naive, but the NFL luckily had a, a, a magic moment this season by bringing the most popular pop star into the storyline of the most successful team in football. And there, and it's telegenic, former uh, reality dating show star, Travis Kelsey. He of the reality show brother of the telegenic mom of the whole thing. And so they have this thing. And the Super Bowl, of course, is the most watched event on television, most watched anything on television every year. So you have this massive whale. You've created this giant whale. And now it's dead and it's drifting to the bottom of the ocean. And when it falls to the ground and begins to molder, all of the animals on the seabed come scuttling out to take their little chunk of the whale home in the form of some clicks and some eyeballs. So the natural consequence of this is that everybody's going to do with the rotting whale what they naturally do. So if you're Vivek Ramaswamy and InfoWars, it's going to be, it's all a conspiracy. If you are People Magazine, it's going to be all about what, you know, will they or won't they? It's going to be the romantic side. E each, each scavenger will do with the rotting flesh of the Kelsey Swift Super Bowl what they wish. Well, this is what I don't understand, really, in that Taylor Swift's fans are all young women, right? Like, right. basically. And well, a couple things. First of all, she endorsed Biden in 2020, I think. She did. And nobody made that big a deal out of it. She endorsed the losing Senate candidate in Tennessee, Bredesen. Yep. Marsha Blackburn ran away with it. But Biden seems to have the young woman vote pretty locked up. One would um, think. It's, it's kind of like the working class minority, Hispanic, African-American, whites, not exactly the Taylor Swift fan base that I, I, I think he's got to worry about. I, I think for Trump, a lot of it just comes down to celebrity, right? He loves. Of course, I get where Trump's coming from, yeah, yeah, but in yeah. terms of the merits of this conspiracy theory, it's just so. And, and, you know, for these guys to align themselves against the most popular people in America just seems foolish. Well, it, it certainly does seem to put a lot more attention on Taylor Swift. I think they're they're trying to to make sure it doesn't happen by well, pr by pre-budding, I mean, but it certainly gives her a bigger platform. Just don't matter. No, it, they they uh, they, they just don't. don't matter. They do, they don't matter and I think that I think there's also this which is it's a kind of a news story. The NFL occupies a unique role in American public life. And there are a lot of dudes who are very upset about the NFL in general, right? They're, they don't like the new rules about, you know, preventing brain injury. They don't like the, the, the DEI component. They don't like the and racism part. They don't like all of this stuff. And this, I think, to them is just a, it's, it's one of those things that is not true, but feels true. And so they rally to it. So I think the upside for Trump in this is that 
most of the dudes in the country will be rooting against the Chiefs, I assume. Now, it is weird when you can end up with the Republican choices to root for the San Francisco football team over the Kansas City football team. That's a little weird. But I think the the energy will be uh, strongly against, among the dudes of America, will be strongly against. And I guess this taps into some of that. But I think to your point, that is far outweighed by, why is Donald Trump mad at my daughter's favorite singer is probably outweighs any benefits that you get from the Jack Probasek community, the Vivek Ramaswamy and Jack Probasek community. Chris, we have the New York Times treatment of Speaker Mike Johnson, who doesn't want to talk to the press. Not anymore. And is telling them he's on the phone. And my friend Annie Carney writes the on the phone gesture. So the headline is a suddenly media shy speaker can't answer questions. He's on the phone. The on the phone gesture serves as a shield against the unwanted hallway interrogation, an all purpose nonverbal rebuff that conveys busyness without seeming to stonewall and carries with it the possibility of extreme awkwardness if ignored. Is it a fake phone call, a sick kid, or the president of the United States? It's hard for journalists to tell who, if anyone, is on the other side of the line. And that's the point. That's amusing. This is some really good writing. Quote, after spending less than six minutes answering questions at a news conference, Mr. Johnson shut down reporter shouted questions with a silent cue, like a cab light switched off, signaling he was no longer available. He held his smartphone phone to his ear and speed walked out of sight. And I love that visual, like a cab light switched off. It's very good, and I got, I'm going to use that. I'm on the damn phone. I'm on the phone. I'd like to talk to you, but I'm on the phone, alas. Someone who is not on the phone but podcasting is Joe Rogan. It's a lot of money. signed a deal worth up to $250 million, although I don't exactly know what up to $250 million means. Semaphore reports that Spotify has reached an agreement worth up to $250 million with its most popular podcaster, Joe Rogan, to renew his show on a multi-year basis and allow his podcast to be distributed across a wider range of platforms, the company announced Friday. Previously, his show was only available on Spotify. The deal was first reported by the Wall Street Journal. The Joe Rogan Experience, which debuted in 2009, was the most listened to podcast in the U.S. in the third quarter of last year, according to Edison Research. Well, that is quite valuable. That is quite rally- valuable. Semaphore continues, the deal will see Rogan get a share of the revenue his show generates on the platforms. This is part of a wider push by Spotify to pay smaller minimum guarantees to its talent and instead aim to distribute risk through revenue sharing deals. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Come on, more, retros. Even, even more than the head of the messenger was making. Come on, retros. If you if you plus us up, we get that kind of cheddar in here. And Eliana can afford to have a, a thermal insulated coffee mug. Come on, take care of us. Yeah, it's not going to scald my hand. Exactly. Okay, facile file time. And we have a, a doozy. We have a beauty. It's from The Atlantic by Alex Kotlowitz. The suburbs have become a Ponzi scheme. A new book looks at how white families depleted the resources of the suburbs and left more recent black and Latino residents holding the bag. And I thought, that's weird because a Ponzi scheme, of course, is a scheme that is planned and that is designed. That's why they call it a scheme and that somebody has set out to do this. And I thought that would be fairly serious. 
He begins, nearly 25 years ago, I reported on the changing demographics of Cicero, a working class suburb just west of Chicago. For years, the town, which was made up of mostly Italian and Eastern European American families, worked hard at keeping black people from settling there. 1951, when a black family moved in, a mob entered their apartment, tore it up and pushed a piano out the window. Police watched and did nothing. The governor had to call out the National Guard. By 2000, 2000, some, that's a fairly big jump in time. The nearby factories, which were the economic foundation of the community, had begun to close. No, sir, they hadn't begun to close in 2000. They were closed. They had already closed. White families moved out and left behind a distressed, struggling town to its new residents, residents, Latinos, who made up three quarters of the population. It felt wrong. It felt like white families got to enjoy the prosperity of the place and then left it to those newcomers to figure out how to repair aging infrastructure and make up for lost tax revenues. Holy cannoli. Holy cannoli, Alex Kotlowitz. Let me tell you, when the families who were the bigoted people who were harassing and intimidating black people who were moving into Cicero in 1951 did that, guess who they were? They were the second to lowest rung on the socioeconomic ladder in Chicago. Cicero was already, by 1951, not the play. It was not Michigan Avenue. It was not the Tony suburbs on the north side of Chicago. Cicero was already a rough town. Cicero was already economically distressed. And the picture that he paints of, it was Leave it to Beaver. This was, this was a rough place in, 19, in 1951. Cicero was not a leafy suburb. It was a tough little town. And the idea that this was somehow by design or in some way intended to afflict. Here's the truth about life in America. Poor people live in the least desirable places and they suffer a lot of harms. The unfortunate truth is that black people and new immigrants are disproportionately represented among the poorest groups of Americans. It wouldn't matter if your neighborhood was crummy whether you were black or white, you would still have a crummy neighborhood. And poverty, and by the way, immigrants who are on an upward trajectory need cheap places to live, and the cheap places to live are not going to be the nicest neighborhoods. I found this article such a towering insult to the intelligence of its readers and so race-obsessed that it blew my mind. Even for a facile file, it blew my mind. Chris, did it blow your mind more than ski mag? Oh, this was great. If we want skiing to be more diverse, let's stop celebrating the ski bum. Nate Moore, Wretch's outdoor living correspondent, Nate Moore, found for us this piece from Ski Mag. Ski bum or quote unquote dirt bag life is not feasible or attractive to me. Oh, let's see. who Who is the author here? We want to make sure we give due credit here to the author of this piece, who is Marty Fuller, Marty Fuller, M-A-R-D-I Fuller. Ski bum or dirtbag life is not feasible or attractive to me as a black person for several reasons. Like me, many black folks don't want to live in a majority white town. In those spaces, we receive a barrage of implicit messages that reinforce white supremacy. And when we, and we suffer when disconnected from the cultural context that uplifts our identity and intrinsic value, the spatial racial isolation of living in these towns 
means that we lack access to the affirmation that comes from being around other black people and BIPOC. And it should go without saying that a black person might experience all sorts of interpersonal racism and difficulty navigating the entrenched insider culture of a mountain town. Woo! Woo wow! What a dose. That is a that is a hot dose right there. I hope you're do you ski? Sort of. Well, just remember what you're doing as you're doing that. Just remember who you're oppressing as you go skiing. So just don't don't enjoy it. Don't enjoy it. I want to just reiterate here. You know who else doesn't want to do that? Most people don't want to do that. How about that, Mr. Fuller, Ms. Mr. or Ms. Fuller? Most people don't want to be live dirtbag culture because it's dirtbag culture. And most people would find insular mountain towns to be insular. Jeez Louise. It's a doozy. We got a, we got a doozy this week. Well, Chris, I was so happy when I saw this long, long Washington Post follow-up to a piece that we talked about maybe six months ago that was a also a long profile of a South Carolina teacher who was reprimanded for teaching Ta-Nehisi Coates's Between the World and Me in her public school classroom. And yet she persisted, Chris. She channeled Elizabeth Warren. She persisted. She went back to school. So for the Washington Post, this warrants a long, long follow-up. Mary Wood. With very stylistic photography. Extraordinarily stylistic photography. think this woman is like Joan of Arc based on the pictures in here. And profiles her walking into class with her modified lesson where she tells the kids they can disagree with the book. The book you guys have, it deals with racism, she said on a recent Tuesday. It's going to be something with which you're unfamiliar, that you need to spend time to research to fully understand. Wood stared at her class. She tried to make eye contact with every teenager. Anyone, she reminded herself, might be secretly recording her or planning to report her. It's amazing. The amount of the number of words devoted to this and not to covering, you know, actual goings on, the actual explosion of crime in Washington, D.C. And then this is amazing. I'm looking at the comments. Mary Woods is a hero. The next one. Thank you, Post reporter Nathan said for a news story that needs to be heard. Well, just giving the people what they want, you know, nothing like getting ready for Black History Month with a story of the patron saint. uh, This woman can be elevated to the patron saint of white women allies. So congratulations. She's 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 made the cut. Chris, that brings us to our our entertainment section. So this is this is basically our style section. Yes, all we have for style this week. And I I I just wanted to make note of some some worthwhile content. It's called In the Know, and it's on Peacock, and it's from Mike Judge of Beavis fame, and many many more things. And it's from the team that gave us Silicon Valley. And it is a, a funny, gentle reproof and ribbing of, I guess, basically Ira Glass, I don't know, but of the kind of content that NPR put
puts out on a weekly and daily basis. And it's funny and it's tart and a little bit sweet. And it's very good. I enjoyed it. I look forward to watching. I had heard about this, but I haven't yet tuned in. But that brings us to our obsessions of the week. Where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. And Chris, mine is the latest accusations of plagiarism against Harvard's head of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which the Free Beacon reported. But my obsession was actually the NBC News follow-up to the piece. The piece was deeply reported and everybody should read it. So NBC News published follow-up piece headline, Harvard DEI chief is the newest target of plagiarism accusations. And the subheadline is the Washington Free Beacon led a similar campaign against ousted Harvard president Claudine Gay. And in the piece, the reporter writes, a conservative news website reported Tuesday on a complaint that accuses Harvard's chief diversity inclusion officer of plagiarism in a campaign similar to the one that led to Claudine Gay's ouster. When asked why the Free Beacon also decided to analyze Charleston's work and whether the report was part of a broader attack on diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, reporter Aaron Sabarium told NBC News in an email, we stand by our reporting. And it's striking that let a campaign against is the new term in the mainstream media for reported. And I was ju- you know, laughing with colleagues about referring to Woodward and Bernstein having led a campaign against Richard Nixon when they reported X, Y, and Z. But trust me, I don't think you'll ever see references in the mainstream media to ProPublica's campaign against Justice Clarence Thomas. And you will never read that. No, you will not. You will not. All right. Duly obsessed. My obsession is, continues to be about the relationship between artificial intelligence and journalism. And my American Enterprise Institute colleague, Clay Calvert, has a a good place for people who want to wade into this a little deeper and think about the implications a little more deeply. The, The post is headline copyright law and the inextricably intertwined futures of journalism and generative artificial intelligence. And no one could say no one could ever accuse that of being a clickbait headline. But it, it lays out some of the arguments before and against, brings you up to speed a little bit on what's going on. But here's your takeaway. In sum, old school journalists and new tech innovators should and must help each other and in turn help the public and democracy through copyright, copyright cooperation, not uncompensated exploitation. What he's counseling for is basically, and there's a deal between the Associated Press and OpenAI that we need to see more news organizations come to arrangements, come to deals with AI and AI platforms, rather than looking for, I'll put it this way, the mistakes that were made at the launch of the internet era are being replicated with the rise of artificial intelligence. There will not be a top-down external force that is going to come in and suitably regulate this to the public benefit. It just, it, it, it won't work. Not with, not with the way our politics are and not with the way technology evolves. So this is a a call. You can take Clay Calvert's call about the need and importance of 
working to find arrangements that work. That's what it's going to take. And executives at every significant news organization, I'm sure, are thinking about this, but everybody needs to be thinking about, okay, what are the deals that we want to make so that we can have copyright honored and we can have intellectual property be maintained? That can only be achieved on a one-to-one, or it will mostly be achieved on a one-to-one basis, not through some regime that will come in and produce a one-size-fits-all solution. Chris, that brings us to my favorite time of the week, which is reader mail. And we have a note from Joel Guthrie, or Joel Stewart, excuse me, in Guthrie, Oklahoma. And Joel writes, Chris and Eliana, when I fell for this clickbait headline, I did not think it would have any content that really mattered to me. Boy, was I wrong. Turns out fur is back and I am here for it. As a guy who traps fur bearers in rural Oklahoma, I can tell you that there isn't a ton of money to be made in fur. I do it to help out the wild turkeys whose eggs are stolen by varmints, but I digress. But now I'm rooting that a TikTok trend will really take off, which is a sentence I would not have dreamt of typing heretofore. Maybe someday we'll see Eliana stepping out in some sustainable possum fur accessories and y'all can thank me when the day comes. I knew exactly what Joel was talking about when he said this because there's this is about the article is TikTok's mob wives trend is fueling a resurgence of fur. So the fashion trend is dark eyeliner, long fur coats and, you know, heels. And it's a thing. It's a thing. But sadly, that is not my style. And the pictures in this CNN article are amazing. That is amazing. I'm yep. I'm still reeling from the idea of you and possum fur. So they're calling it mob, mob wives fashion. I just, Mr. Stewart, if you are willing to send some possum fur accessories to Eliana, I will implore her to wear them. Um, and we have a note from Jack in Pennsylvania who writes, hi. Love your podcast, and I look forward to it each week. Regarding the following, I don't know if this is the kind of stuff you're looking for, but as Chris would say, wow, talk about getting it wrong. (laughs) The first screenshot came uh, below came from the Philadelphia Inquirer by email at 11.20 a.m. on January 29th. The second, labeled as a correction, came at 12.36 p.m. I've seen a lot of articles lately about the impending death of the mainstream media. Instances like this don't make the case for survival. There were three reporters listed on the byline, so how did it happen? Either they were infusing their own desires into the court ruling, or they are so inept that they can't read a document clearly. Neither possibility seems good. And the two side-by-side pictures are on the left. Pennsylvania Supreme Court rules abortion access is a right protected by state constitution. And the corrected one is Pennsylvania Supreme Court grapples with question of whether abortion access is protected by state constitution. Yikes. Yikes. Well, I'll give them the I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that they had two versions. They were rushing. They had two versions queued up, ready to go. One for yes, one for no. And they blundered into yes and then somebody said, did you already send out the news alert? Yes. Ah, whoops. Ah, whoops. Yikes. Yikes. I'm reading the text of the articles now where one says Pennsylvania's highest court has ruled that access to abortion is a right guaranteed by the state's constitution. And the other one says 
They issued a significant reproductive rights ruling Monday in which some justices signaled they were ready to recognize abortion access as a right protected by the state's constitution. Oh, geez. Won't, won't. Wow. Chris, that brings us to your favorite time of the week. Where I am where I am forced to say something nice, but as always, please lead us by example. Well, uh, in honor of the final uh, season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, we have an all-curb, we have an all-curb kicker. We have an all-curb kicker. And I love this item of Larry David asked a question. So this is from the Associated Press. He's asked to reflect on his 2022 Super Bowl ad for a cryptocurrency trading platform called FTX amid an ongoing fraud case against Sam Bankman-Fried. The company's founder, David, reunited with Curb Your Enthusiasm cast members for the show's final season premiere. And here is what, here's what Larry David said. Um, yeah. I, um, you know, I asked people, friends of mine who were well-versed in this stuff, should I do this ad? Is, is there anything wrong with this, me doing this? Is this okay? And they said, yeah, this is t- totally on the up and up. Yeah, it's fine. Do it. So... Uh, like an idiot, I did it, but um, yeah, yeah, I'm in a, uh, a class action lawsuit, which I would love to be part of, because part of my uh, salary was was in crypto, so I lost a lot of money, yeah. So I, it is a favorite of mine because it is an instance of a public figure answering a difficult question in a forthright way. He didn't hide from the question. It's a difficult question. Why did you do this? And he basically says, because I'm an idiot. I asked my friends whether I should do this. They said it was fine. So I did it. And I took a beating because they paid me and they paid me in crypto and I lost my shirt. And I thought, that's really good. That's like a, that, that's a, in his own childish way, a very mature grown up way about doing that. And I thought that was, we, uh, many of, uh, many people in public life could take a, a note from Larry David on that. Chris, my favorite was this wonderful New York Times profile of Susie Essman and the Curb Your Enthusiasm star. And there were so many great vignettes and lines and funny parts of this that it was hard to choose just one. But the author writes of Essman, she doesn't see the big deal with four-letter language. If you say, you know, the friggin' or the freakin' instead of the expletive, you mean the same thing, right? Still, that's not how most of her interactions start. People come up to me on the street and they're visibly disappointed when I'm gracious and kind, she said. I mean, I've seen people's face drop. And she says, more often they thrust out a phone and beseech her to call their husbands. It's almost always a husband. A few unprintable epithets. I'm like, I'm buying a melon. I'm not in the mood, Esmond said, but she obliges. It's... It's so great. And she talks about how whenever she goes shopping and she sees, you know, ridiculous outfits, she says, that's a Susie outfit. That's a Susie Green outfit. That's a Susie Green outfit. It's just awesome. That is awesome. Amazing piece. That is amazing. So look at us coming together, bringing together Yale and Hamden, Sydney, Minneapolis and West Virginia in an in a appreciation for Curb Your Enthusiasm. I really, really enjoyed it. And that is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com and sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches. 
produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Just search for Wretches. <laughs>